And and we it's not like we choose to lie to ourselves. It's it's self-protective because you don't want to live in that place of cognitive dissonance, you know, mm-hmm. where you you know something's wrong but you do it anyways. So we kind of convince ourselves that, that it's okay because it just seems too hard or impossible to do anything else. Try friends. This is your host, Dr. Solomon. How to speak your mind when you know what is right? And who will be best to answer this question than an authority in business ethics like Dr. Mary Gentle? Dr. Mary Gentle developed Giving Voice to Values, a pioneering business curriculum for value-driven leadership. And now it's piloted in over 1,200 educational settings and organizations globally. She holds numerous accolades. I'll just mention a few. She's shortlisted for the Thinker's 50 Ideas into Practice. In 2015, she was one of the 100 most influential in business ethics by Ethics Sphere. She is one of the top thought leaders in trust in 2015 and received the Lifetime Achievement Award winners by Trust Across America, Trust Around the World. Dr. Gentle spent 10 years of her career at Harvard Business School before moving to UVA Darden School of Business, not to mention that she is one of the top minds in 2017 in Ethics Leadership by Compliance Week. Welcome on Thrive, Dr. Gentle. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with this oxymoron that we call business and ethics. I'm really curious about your advocacy for an entrepreneurial approach to ethics. To me, ethics and business as a combination sometimes do not come together easy. What do you mean exactly by an entrepreneurial approach to ethics? Yes, well, you know, when I was uh, first getting into this field, I would often feel that if uh, someone asked me what I did for a living, and I would say, well, I I teach business ethics, um, they would immediately say exactly what you just said. They'd say, oh, well, isn't that an oxymoron, you know? (laughs) And and after a while, you know, it was like a bad joke, you know? And in fact, I even got to the point where sometimes I would lie about what I did for a living, which is pretty bad for someone who teaches ethics, right? (laughs) But I just didn't want to go there and have all those bad jokes. But I actually understand why people said that. And a lot of it is because the way we would teach about ethics and particularly business ethics was as if it was about a bunch of thou shalt nots, you know, a bunch of constraints on action, the things you can't do, the lines you can't cross, the rules you can't break, the the laws you need to be restrained by or the regulations. And, you know, people who go into business, you know, most people, you know, are, are driven by some sort of ambition. They want to build enterprises. They want to advance in their careers. They want to make money. They want to be successful. And so the idea of all these constraints on action was not all that appealing. And in a way, it almost invited people to to push against it, you know, to resist it. Um, But for a lot of reasons, which I'll probably go into during the course of our conversation, I developed a different approach. And my approach is more, as I say, it's more can do. It's more entrepreneurial in the sense of instead of talking about what you can't do, I try and uh, focus more aspirationally. Um, And I start from the premise that most of us actually would like to act on our values. Uh, We just want to feel like we can do so without always being put at a systematic disadvantage, you know, which isn't the same as being is being sure you're going to succeed. It's just simply that you think you have a chance, you have a shot. 
And so when I talk about giving voice to values, the work that I do, I really focus more on, you know, how could you get the right thing done? Instead of focusing on the restraints, I focus on action. Um, How can we successfully engage in values-driven leadership? So that's what I mean. And could you elaborate on the value-based ethics approach that you use? You said you are focused mostly on taking an action. How can we translate this into practical steps for startup leaders and business leaders? Right, right. So again, the way we typically think about uh, ethics, whether it's in teaching or whether it's in training in an organizational setting, or whether it's just in our own lives, our own behavior, is we tend to think about it as if it's entirely a an intellectual problem, a cognitive mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just have to give you a framework, a decision-making framework. And you can put all the data in one end of the box and the right answer will pop out the other end and then we're done. I call that the preach and pretend model because I preach to you about what's right and then I pretend that you can do it, (laughs) you know? And it's not all that effective in my experience. So what I actually like to do is to actually ask a different question. Uh So instead of asking what's the right thing to do in any particular situation in business, I I will create scenarios, case studies, which Mm -hmm. is what I I learned to do when I was at Harvard. I used to run their case writing program. I'll create scenarios based on real situations, but the case ends with someone who's already decided what he or she thinks the ethical thing to do, the right thing to do, the thing that's consistent with their own values. And the question isn't what's right. The question is, how can you get the right thing done? And so the experience that you have in your own problem-solving is um, how to uh, create action plans and scripts and rehearsals for how you can actually enact these things. Um, We we, we know from the research now is that people don't, um, the way people uh, make ethical decisions is they don't sit down and make pros and con lists, right? They don't sit down and say, what would Aristotle say? That's not how we do it. We, We have a conflict and we tend to just act automatically, emotionally, even unconsciously. And then we rationalize afterwards why it was the right thing to do or why it was the only thing to do. And so if you approach it as if it's entirely this intellectual problem, you're really not addressing that automatic response. So what I'm trying to do is to literally rewire that connection, that automatic connection to create a habit, to create, I call it a moral muscle memory, um, so that it's more natural and you're more confident. And you do that by asking what I call the giving voice to values thought experiment question. I don't ask, what would you do? I ask, what if you wanted to do this? What if you thought this was the right thing to do? How could you get it done? I find that often when people encounter values conflicts, they kind of dumb themselves down. You know, people who are really skillful, who are great communicators, who are wonderful negotiators, somehow when it's an ethical issue, It's like they put it into a different category and they think it has to be some sort of moral defining moment. And and they they act much less skillfully than they would if they were trying to do some other kind of task. And so what I'm trying to do is to make this more normal, to bring down the emotion so that we can both access our best skills. And you do that through practice, through rehearsal. Mm -hmm. On this note, Mary, when there is a confusion about an ethical dilemma, say in business or medicine, and people are under extreme pressure from bosses or targets to be met, the most common answer when they take the wrong route is, quote, I didn't think I have a choice, quote, which you referred to answering the prior question. What could be our reference point here? 
Yeah. Yeah. I hear that all the time. When I was creating Giving Voice to Values, I gathered stories, hundreds of stories of people who, you know, I, you know, asking them, tell me about a values conflict that you had, uh, you know, in your work experience and how you handled it. And they would tell me stories. I wanted to gather stories of when people were successful, Mm -hmm. but they would also want to tell me the story of when they had failed. Mm -hmm. And when I asked them why they had failed to act when they, when they did, they would usually say exactly what you said. They'd usually say, I didn't think I had a choice. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do with giving voice to values, I feel like I've been success. I can't make anyone do the right thing, but what I feel like I've been successful, if I can help people understand that they have more choices than they thought. And there's a couple ways that you do that. One way, one way you do that is to understand, and we know this from research, that people seem to generalize from the negative and they seem to th- see the positive as an exception, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yep. so, and yep. so the negativity so, you know, bias. Yeah. Exactly. So you kind of assume, and part of that makes sense, right? From an evolutionarily uh effective point of view. I mean, you, you want to, you want to watch out for the risks, right? And so you're trying to protect yourself from the risks. And so that's why we tend to pay attention to the negative. Um, But the other thing that we try, so first thing we want to do is just help people understand that, you know, that your brain works that way. It's not good or bad. It's just understand that. And then the other thing we try and do is simply share positive examples. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things I've done is, you know, we've created all these scenarios and, um, we like to find as many certain scenarios as we can, cases where people did find a successful way to do this. And when we when we don't find that, we then we still ask, well, what could they have done to have been more successful? So we try and give them positive examples. And then the other thing we do is we literally give them the rehearsal and the peer coaching with each other. So we ask people, I'll never ask somebody, what would you do? in this particular ethical situation. Because if I ask that, I get three kinds of answers and none of them are helpful to me. The first answer I get is the people who say, oh, I would do the right thing. (laughs) And they may really mean it, but we know from experience that they might not, (laughs) right? For a lot of reasons. Yeah. And then you get the people who say, well, I know what you want me to say, Mary, but in the real world, that's just not possible. Mm -hmm. And they may be just trying to be honest with me, or they may be playing devil's advocate, but either way, they just say it's not possible. And then the third response are the people who just argue with the premise and they'll say, well, it's not wrong. It's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So any one of those answers, even if they're given in all sincerity, they don't help you get to the kind of rehearsal and pre-scripting and practice that I'm talking about. They stop it too soon. So instead, I just ask, what if you were this person who knows this is what they think is right? How could they get it done effectively? So you're actually giving people the assignment, even the requirement to apply all their creativity to coming up with a strategy to do the thing that everyone thinks it's impossible to do. I never ask you to commit to doing something until you actually feel like you, you've thought through some options, you know, and, and ideally even seen some examples, because what you're trying to do is, is build this habit, you know, this muscle memory. So that's kind of how you help people understand that they, they may have more choices than they thought. <laughs> yes, yes. And I know you kindly make this course free and online. Yeah, a lot of it is free. The curriculum, um, much of the curriculum, most of the curriculum is is for free download. There is a MOOC through Coursera, which you can audit for free. Um, And then some of the stuff through publishing is, you know, there's a charge, but a lot of it is free. Yeah. 
And this will include the scripts for how to handle something. Yeah, yeah the curriculum that's available, um, there's scenarios. And then if you're an educator or a trainer, you can get the teaching note. <laughs> and, the, and the teaching note kind of tells you what actually happened and how the person addressed it. And then I have a lot of information in the book, for example, that talks about different ways to create scripts and action plans. And there's videos. There's lots of stuff. If people are curious, I can always send them materials. Absolutely. And for people watching us, if you are interested in knowing more about the values-based approach in leadership, uh, the link for giving voice to values will be included in the YouTube description below. I have mixed feelings and experiences with ethics courses in medical school and in business schools. So sometimes after an hour of discussing a case, it is so frustrating to hear at the end the phrase, oh, there is no right or wrong answer here. Do you think business and medical ethics are truly in the eyes of the beholder? <laughs> it's a really great point. So I'll tell you how I think about that question. Um, it used to be when I was first teaching in this field, when I was still at Harvard Business School and, and, and other places, you know, people would say, don't teach the clear cut black and white, right, wrong yep. cases. Those are too easy. You have to focus on the gray issues, the issues where, where there's no right answer, where mm -hmm. it's complicated and a little bit right, a little bit wrong. And I used to think, yeah, that makes sense, you know, but I've actually changed my mind because, of course, there are a lot of gray issues where, you know, reasonable people of goodwill and intelligence can legitimately disagree. That's why they're gray. But nevertheless, there are a lot of issues where most of us, not everybody, but most of us would agree, well, that's clearly illegal, or that's clearly fraudulent, or that's clearly abusive, it's clearly over the line. And just because most of us might agree to that does not mean that we actually feel like we are competent to act on that assumption. Mm -hmm. And so what I do with Giving Voice to Values is I try and focus on those more clear-cut issues, because I want to help, help people build those skills and that habit, that moral muscle memory, and, and the scripts, um, and to anticipate the kinds of uh, objections they're going to face. We call those reasons and rationalizations, and to actually practice ways to unpack them and respond to them so that um, you actually can, can more effectively act. My theory is if, if more of us could act successfully on those clear-cut issues, it would go a long way to addressing a lot of the problems. The other thing I've learned from, you know, I, I work with a lot of organizations, I work with companies and with the US military, and uh, I'm starting to work in healthcare and, and many other fields. And I remember talking to a gentleman who uh, was responsible for designing ethics training for the Army, the US Army. So this was like, at the time, it was like 1.3 million enlisted and civilian. Uh, folks. And, you know, they would create scenarios and training programs. And he wanted to apply some of the insights from GVV. So I spent a day with them. And, and he said to me something I thought was really interesting in light of what you just asked. He said to me, you know, Mary, I've been working in this field for a number of years. And when I first started, you know, there seemed to be a lot of black and white, right, wrong kinds of questions. And he said, increasingly, as the years have gone on, it seems like all the issues are gray. All the issues are, you know, like, well, it's, there's no right answer. And we talked about it. And of course, some of that is because the world is complicated. <laughs> and so they really are complex. But some of it is because of what you and I were talking about in the very beginning, which is if you don't think it's possible to act on your values, it's an automatic self-justification, a kind of rationalization 
that, you know, there's no right answer. <laughs> it's really yeah. just gray. And, and we, it's not like we choose to lie to ourselves. It's, it's self-protective because you don't want to live in that place of cognitive dissonance, you know, mm-hmm. where you, you know, something's wrong, but you do it anyways. So we kind of convince ourselves that, that it's okay because it just seems too hard or impossible to do anything else. And so I think by building up this, this ability, this skill, this muscle memory, this habit, we actually will start to expand the number of places where we actually can conclude, yeah, there is something I could do here that would be good, that would be right, (laughs) Um, you know? And even when an issue is truly gray, we're going to get better at being able to talk about it because we've developed this this ability, these skills. Mm -hmm. So to summarize, there could be a reference point, and this is things that most people agree is right or wrong. And by practicing the black and white scenarios, we will get better at defining answers for the gray scenarios. Does this sound correct? As well as the black and white scenarios. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's circle back to the main question of the episode, Mary, and the title of your book, How to Speak Your Mind When You Know What is Right. I'm curious, how would you advise interns and employees to raise serious black and white ethical concerns without fearing the consequences of being labeled as, say, whistleblowers or troublemakers and paying this out of their career? Yeah, it's such an important question. And 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 really, Mohammed, it's why I created Giving Voice to Values is because people tended to look at these issues as if you had to blow the whistle. That was the only option. And one of the things that I was seeing is that, of course, there are times when blowing the whistle may be the only option, you know, maybe the risks are too high, life and death, and maybe there's not enough time. But there were a lot of places where it it wasn't at that point yet. And yet we knew that trying to blow the whistle, when you wait till that point, it's really costly. It's costly for the whistleblower, usually. It's costly for the organization, because it's gotten so far that they're in deep trouble. And it's costly for whoever was being harmed by the by the unethical behavior, right? If yes. it was pollution or fraud or whatever it was. Yes. So, so I wanted to help people develop the skills to be able to talk about things before whistleblowing became necessary. And I wanted to help them develop the skills to do that in a way that wouldn't create those negative consequences that you're talking about. And so we did a number of things. We, we looked at people who did this effectively to mm. see how they did it. And most of them used the same skills that you would use to promote any other kind of business issue. You know, they, they, they reframed the problem in a way to help people see the advantages of doing something. They, they brought in other sources of data so people could understand both the positive and the negative consequences. They brought in other, decision, other players into the decision-making team. So there were different points of view that maybe weren't getting heard otherwise. They used um, different um, modes of communication. One of the things I learned is that I used to think to do this, you had to be really risk of a risk taker, somebody who was really bold and you know didn't care, you know, about mm-hmm. the risk, and maybe someone who's pretty aggressive, kind of assertive, maybe you know, somebody who is really likes a good argument. And what I found when I started talking, and I also thought, and I wasn't those things. I was an introvert. I was a little more risk averse. So I thought, well, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to ever do this. I see things that I think are wrong, but I can't do anything about them. But when I started interviewing people, I found that sure enough, when I ran into someone who was a real aggressive risk-taking type, 
he or she would say, yeah, I figure why not take a risk in the service of something that matters to me. But I also ran into people who were very um, more cautious, even fearful. And they would say, well, I acted because I thought it was safer. You know, <laughs> so what I realized is that you can't tell the aggressive risk taker to be conservative because they're going to say that's nice, but it's not who I am. And if you tell the the fearful, cautious introvert to be bold and have moral courage, they're going to say, well, that's nice, but it's not who I am. But instead, you, people can frame the challenge they're facing in a way that plays to their strengths. So one of the things we do with people is we say, think about when you've been effective at influencing somebody about anything, not necessarily ethics, and then use those skills. And then think about the person you're talking to and think about when have I ever seen him or her change their mind and then try and tap into that. So sometimes it might mean that you don't do the talking, that you talk to someone who talks to someone who has the ear of the decision maker. I remember one woman I talked to and she told me that she was always most comfortable. Um, she was a senior executive, but she always said she felt always most, most comfortable um, in writing with data, you know, making a very a thoughtful and, and strategic argument. But her boss, the CEO, he tended to be very much influenced by a compelling story, you know, some mm. bold story. And she wasn't that kind of person. And so she told me the story about how one day she was in a meeting with the other executives and the CEO had an idea and he wanted to do something and he proposed it and he clearly really wanted to do it. And she thought it was you know, not right. <laughs> but everybody was going along because he really wanted to do it. And she was saying, I was sitting there and I knew that it wasn't right. But she said, I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to say anything. I was the only it seemed like I was the only one who saw the problem. And she just it wasn't who she was. So they made the decision that was going to go ahead. And it was at the end of the day. And she said she it just she couldn't let it sit. And so she said she went home. And she, this was back in the day of phone calls rather than email. She made a phone call and she left a voicemail for her boss. And she said, look, I know we made the decision to do X, Y, Z in our meeting today, but there's some information I really think you need to hear before we move forward. Mm -hmm. So can I just have five minutes of your time tomorrow morning, first thing in the morning? So she left the voicemail and then she went home and she, she wrote a memo and it was like the careful data-driven, evidence-driven argument that she felt comfortable with. And then she went in the next morning and she she felt like she couldn't argue with him. That wasn't her skill. But what she did is she told him a story about why he should read her memo. <laughs> and so, so she figured she could she could do a five-minute compelling story about why you should read this memo. And she couldn't do a compelling argument on the whole thing, but she yeah. could do that. So he read her memo and he changed his mind. <laughs> you know, and so, wow. so I always feel like you have to think about what are what's your best ability. And what's the way the person or the people you're trying to influence react and then try and find some ways to resolve that. I always tell people this isn't easy and it's not even always possible, but you can get better at it and it's important. And the way you get better at it is by looking at how people have changed their mind in the past, looking at examples, playing to your strengths and rehearsing and prescripting. You know, in our in our book, in our curriculum, we anticipate all of the kinds of arguments that you're likely to hear, things like, oh, it's not a big enough deal, or it's just the way they do it in this, in this industry or this part of the world, you know, it's standard operating procedure, 
or it's not your responsibility. It's above your pay grade, yeah. you know, or things like that. And yes. then we, we unpack them and talk about how you could respond to those. So you can practice because those arguments are powerful, but they're not bulletproof, but it's really hard to think of an answer in the moment when I'm talking to my boss or my colleague, you know, yes. so that the whole idea, it's, it's actually based on a lot of research that, says this is how you have an impact on people's behavior through rehearsal, through pre-scripting and peer coaching. Thank you for sharing this, Mary. Now it is time to ask you the question that I ask everyone on the show. Sure. We all had setbacks mm -hmm. where we managed to go from striving to thriving. And through your career in business ethics, I'm sure you had many of these. Would you mind sharing one with the audience and how you handled it? Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking of, of um, really the reason I developed Giving Waste to Values. I had been working in this field for several decades, and I became disillusioned. I kind of was despairing because it seemed like when I was in the classroom or when I was in a company, all, all that happened was what you just described. People would either just say, well, you know, there's no right answer, or yeah. they would end up almost rehearsing the rationalizations. You know, one professor called them the professional rationalizations, you know, the way we the way we excuse ourselves. Right. And I thought, you know, is this really doing any good? You know, it's like life is short. I don't know. I feel like I'm not helping here. And yeah. um, and so I, I became pretty discouraged and I actually gave up. I, I took a step back from this work. Um, this was like in the like mid 90s. And I, I, I actually decided, you know, I've got some skills. I'll do something else. Life is short. <laughs> you know, I want to do something that matters. And this feels like it's just make work, you know. Yeah. Um, and around that time, I had a number of different experiences as well as started to come across the research that I've met, mentioned to you, which actually triggered a whole different way of looking at this, that instead of focusing on these issues as if they were just intellectual problems, we should help people build the skills and instead of asking them, what would you do? We ask, what if you wanted to do the right thing? And, and it was that, the exposure to that research and the exposure to some um, experiences where I saw examples of people who were able to do this effectively mm -hmm. that actually helped me move from that despair to thriving. <laughs> but it, it took a while, you know, it, it took maybe about, I guess I'd say about 10 years in that, in that sort of transition. transition. So you took a step back. Mm -hmm. And then you searched for resources to answer. I didn't. Dilemma. I gave up. <laughs> I gave thought up. I'll do something else. <laughs> and they came to me. I, I just started seeing things and I started putting it together. Uh, uh, Sometimes you have to stop pushing, you know, and you have to yes, just yes. sort of try something else and let yourself be open, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how did you come across the research that showed you a different path? Yeah, there were there were a number of different things. I guess um, one of the main things was I was doing a consulting job uh, at Columbia Business School, actually. And while I was there working on a project, there were a group of other faculty, senior faculty, who were still working on business ethics. And they said, you know, they knew about the work I had done previously at Harvard. And they said, can we show you something? And they had asked um, all of their incoming MBA students to just write a, a little paragraph about a time when they'd had a values conflict and how they handled it. And I read hundreds and hundreds of these, well over a thousand, because these faculty just wanted to know what did I think about them. And when I read them, it was really interesting because I kept seeing the same kinds of challenges. And yet some of the students were able to find these really interesting ways to do the right thing. And many of them thought they didn't have the option. 
And so that was sort of the beginning for me of seeing, well, you know, people do have choices. So now we have to unpack why some of them, and it wasn't because some of them were good people and some of them were bad people. They all were uncomfortable about the problem. It's just some of them felt they had an option. And so that was a trigger for me to begin to look for the research. What a pleasure to have you on Thrive, Mary. Oh, it's fun to be here. Thank you, Solomon. (laughs) People watching us, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you. (laughs) 